Welcome to Inside the Hive. I'm your host, Nick Bilton, and I have a very, very, very special guest today who I'm going to make introduce himself because he has the ultimate radio voice. Take it away. That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> I have the ultimate radio voice. Well, you've done, you've done three podcasts now. <laughs> now I'm like four. Tra- self-conscious. I'm trying to adjust right, to my voice. let's do it. Ready? Drum roll. Go. I'm Ronan Farrow, and I'm a reporter. That's it? You know who I think has the ultimate radio voice? Who? Gia Tolentino. Have you heard Gia's voice? No, is it you should listen better, to the, than, better than yours? or I think it is. You should listen to the Trick Mirror audiobook. She used to do commercial voiceovers. And I love a good VO. I, I dabbled in anime voice acting on a very small-time level, actually. So I, I like when I hear what Gia has, which is she has just the right amount of fry... It sort of it projects a certain amount of gravitas, but it's also super real and cash. I will, I've read her book. I will now go listen to the audiobook so I can learn from her. There you go. From her ways. All right, let's start with, let's just start easy. Should we start this conversation like low, low key? First level you, you of You know Tetris. where I'm going with this. Who killed Jeffrey Epstein? Was it the Trump administration, <laughs> the royal family, right, right. The, the, easy, the easy questions. Um, right, Colonel Mustard. Uh, Do you think he was killed? Uh, you know, murdered. I mean, look, so, we're ju- it's just I'll, I'll a conversation. Be, I'll here. be upfront. I mean, I I did uh, break a not insignificant story about Epstein and his fundraising relationships in the academic world not long Reddit. ago. So I I want to draw a sharp distinction and and be very clear that I have not investigated or you know published any reporting on Epstein's death. Uh, when I was finishing Catch and Kill. It, the final proofs were happening right as he died. And we had to come up with the language to use to describe it. Mm-hmm. And it was like, do you, you know, what is the Washington Post saying? What is the New York Times saying? And they were at that point, I think, just doing straight reporting saying, you know, he committed suicide. Um, and then there's all these variations of different papers now have adopted different language to describe that because of trigger warnings and suicide contagion and stuff. Um, which I think is very fair. Uh, but then in this particular case, obviously, there's the added complication of how much do you hedge? And I, I think we did hedge. I think we went with language that said, you know, he was dead of an apparent suicide because the reality is we just don't know. I I, I think that there is no hard evidence to suggest a crazy conspiracy, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But and there's a lot of evidence to, con- to suggest. I'm like partially goofing around here, but also partially like I'm not a conspiracy theory guy. I have a, a, a distant family member who tried to convince me that the Anunnaki is an alien civilization that lives at the center of the earth. I'm not going there, but family member of, sounds great. There's a, there's a Do lot a podcast of, with that person <laughs> way. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of questions around how it went down. Well, anyway, well, here, here's what I would say. I mean, I know, I know you, uh, raised it partly as a joke, but it is a matter worthy of serious inquiry and totally great. Uh, you know, I, I think at the very least there's clear evidence that there was negligence happening and the question is, how much is that just the standard negligence that happens all the time in the criminal justice system and gets covered up? Uh, and how much was it a special level of negligence here? All right, let's move on. So I last time I saw you was, I think, was earlier sometime this year, and it was at, um, at the, a Vanity Fair event, and I came up to you, and I was like, I hear you're working on a story about Les Moonves. This is obviously before your story came out about Les Moonves, 
And I'd heard it for like six months and you demurred and you kind of was like, I'm not telling you anything. And um, and then the story came out and Les lost his job and so on and so forth. And I, what I find so fascinating is it, that is towards the middle to end of the period of the Me Too movement we're in today. And uh, the same thing happens with General Schneiderman. A story comes out. He quits four hours later. Um, these people know this thing is coming out. Do they believe that they are above it so much that it is not going to to knock them off their high horse? Or like, wh- what is the what is the personality that believes that they are the ones that will not have to quit? I don't know the answer to that, and I kind of think I don't have to. I mean, my job is so narrow in that situation, which is just interrogate the facts and do it fairly and make sure the reporting is bulletproof. And part of that process is engaging as deeply as the person you're reporting on wants with that person, you know, and um, everyone is different in that respect. And some people want to engage a lot and comment on very factually specific things. And uh, I think much more frequently you end up with people of that stature outsourcing that to intermediaries who do crisis management and lawyers who do uh, threatening journalists for a living. (laughs) And, uh, you know, I don't know that that's the right approach, but whatever approach they want to take, I I hear them out a lot. And, and, you know, you hear the whole spectrum of um, menace and brash arrogance and sometimes some vulnerability here and there. But is it is it an example of the fact that these people have gotten away with what they've gotten away with for so long that they think that they're going to continue to get away with it? Well, I, I think that's changing. I, I mean, I, I there was a long period where I was reporting on Harvey Weinstein, and I think he really did have that posture that he'd succeeded in killing stories for years. And um, you know, even succeeded in killing the story I was working on, uh, and I had to upend my whole professional life over it. And then, obviously, the story came out anyway. And I, I think in the wake of that, uh, there is less of that reaction, at least to my face, when I come to someone with a serious body of evidence. They they do tend to take it more seriously now. You have this new podcast out. Um and it's Catch and Kill, is that the, right? The Catch and Kill podcast. The Catch and Kill podcast, and um, and it's fantastic. I was, Thank uh, you. I've been, it's one of those podcasts where you're sitting in the car in your driveway listening to the end because you don't want to get out of your car uh, unless you're in New York and you don't have a car, and then I don't know how you guys do it there. <laughs> we listen to podcasts while walking in New York, very <laughs> hazardous. Um, but what I find, there's so many things I want to talk about about this, but uh, the thing that I found so infuriating listening to it is the stories of Noah Oppenheim and Andy Lack at NBC and the fact that they clearly, you know, you're 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 putting this out in a in a very auditory way which is different from your book and different from even the audiobook mm-hmm. and that they get away with what they get away with and that that Noah Oppenheim just got a a, a new deal uh, Andy's still there as someone who who had a story killed by them um, and have, they've said not very nice things about you, of course, and they have st- they're have they still getting contracts 
and they even get, you know, Noah got a bottle of, what was it? Of, Grey Goose. Of Grey Goose. Who Harvey drinks, Weinstein. Who drinks Grey Goose, by the way? Um, <laughs> I don't mind a Grey Goose. I, um, are you a Stoli guy? What's your vodka? No, I'm a whiskey guy. You're a whiskey guy. Oh, that's very grown up. Yeah, I like a Macallan 18 or something like that. Oh, no, it's um, gay water all the way for me. It's a vodka, vodka soda. <laughs> Goose is fine. Rail is fine. I'm not picky. I can't. I can't do it. It's like it's like I'm 12 and I'm just stole liquor from my parents' liquor cabinet or something like that. Um, but when you when you see these guys get, it's like another iteration of it. Doesn't it make your blood boil like it does me as a listener? Or are you just like, eh? Well, that's kind of what happens. I mean, I don't know that I'm just like, eh. I you know spent several years doing very detailed reporting on it, and I, I think that you know there's been a massive outcry about this issue. The Employees of NBC News unionized in protest of it. Rachel Maddow gone on air and uh, castigated her own bosses and demanded an outside investigation, which they've declined to do. And Chris Hayes gave a very moving speech on air. These are hard things to do to confront your bosses in these ways. And, you know, a couple of things in terms of tangible change have happened. One is they have been cornered into acknowledging that there was a pattern of these these settlements with women and it's a little mealy mouth still to say, you know, if these settlements exist, then you can approach us, women we've paid out and asked to be let out of them. And it's baby steps. A lot of the women who had that burden of silence because NBC executives paid them out to shut them up uh, have said that they're not interested in approaching a network that refuses to investigate this, to ask for permission to be let out of their NDAs. They don't trust that process. But at the very least, they've gone from outright just lying about these uh, settlements that I document in the book um, to kind of engaging on the issue. Uh, And I think that there's much less space for those kinds of secret settlements as a result of the reporting on CBS, the reporting on NBC. And I've been told by investigative reporters at NBC News, who were very torn up about this. I mean, two a one, the journalists in that building were incredibly supportive of the book, but many of them are sources in the book, obviously, that at the very least, those executives are straitjacketed now in terms of their ability to overtly kill stories. So, how, how, how is that? Well, that's look, it's a fair question to ask with that tone. Is it enough to have public pressure in this moment? And does that dissipate? But for now, anyway, uh, I have been told that uh, they are giving a much wider berth to reporters working on tough stories. So, you know, I think that the pressure goes on. There are these ultraviolet and Time's Up protests outside of 30 Rock. There are massive petitions calling for the firing of this executive or that executive. The calls for an independent investigation, which, let's be clear, it is insane and only logical if there is something to hide to refuse independent investigation under this kind of pressure. Um, All of that is ongoing, but I think that already we've seen uh, a substantial uh, effort to, you know, to not have this kind of scandal play out again. They don't want another killing of the Weinstein story on their hands. It's been bad for them. I know you'll probably won't answer this question, but I'll ask it to you anyway. Do you think that Noah Oppenheim should have lost his job? It's really not for me to say what a company should do to act on this kind of reporting. I am relieved that our profession, fellow journalists, have risen up the way that they have and defended the reporting, including NBC's own reporters, and said that they've independently corroborated it. And whether a company acts on that and undertakes substantial reform as a result is not up to me. 
So last week, um, Harvey Weinstein settled financially, um, and uh, there's kind of been some mixed responses to that. And and I'm curious the 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 sources that you um, have worked with over the years and how difficult it was for them to come out, which you detail in the podcast and the book and everything, uh, and listening to um, uh, Ambra's story uh, is just. It's crazy. Isn't uh, she incredible? I, the part, you know, the part that got me in her story, uh, and she is, do you want to just tell the listeners a little bit briefly? So, so Amber Gutierrez is one of the characters in this wider plot in the book that we do a deep dive into her story on the podcast. And she was a 22-year-old Italian-Filipina model who barely spoke English when Harvey Weinstein uh, groped her during a meeting. And... She's an incredible character study because she just does everything right. She, despite her age and the fact that she's still a fish out of water and has really no power or connections to speak of, came from a working class family in Italy, she really stands her ground and confronts him and decides to go back the following day wearing a wire for the police to extract a confession, all the while terrified that he's going to touch her again, that he's going to discover she's wearing a wire. You know, he's a physically intimidating guy on top of everything else. And there's this incredible audio, which figured heavily in the plot of the book, because my quest to obtain it and the way in which I got it from her. Um, But I think that was integral to how the Harvey Weinstein story played out, hearing him in action, first trying to seduce, then trying to bully uh, a woman, um, and then admitting to this assault. He, he, she gets a confession out of him in this tape. Um, and we wouldn't have heard that tape if it weren't for the bravery of this young woman. Well, the thing that I find so amazing about her story is there's these little moments, like when she Harvey tries to take her from the lobby of the hotel up to her, her room, his room, uh, and she leaves her jacket behind on purpose. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's it it makes you realize that she lives in a very different world than most of us do, especially men, uh, and that she has to think through that many steps of a way to avoid being in a room with someone like him. It's really, it's like a chess match. and A constant she, chess match. She goes through the, the TikTok of it and the podcast in a way that I found pretty mesmerizing and... Um, you know, one layer of what makes her story so compelling to me is everyone underestimated her. They all thought she was, you know, a dumb lingerie model. I, I heard it over and over again from Harvey Weinstein's representatives and lawyers. You know, she's a hustler. She was a shakedown artist. All these sort of sort of smears, which we unpack in the in the book, and none of that is accurate. Um, and also just that they didn't think she had any substance to her because that's what people think of young women, particularly young women who are in that business, you know, they're objects. And she was anything but those things they called her. She was extraordinarily savvy. And to your point, you know, the other thing that makes her story so arresting is she talks openly about what it's like to be an object to so many people to be targeted in that way. Just the reality of being a woman in so many situations that requires you to plan several steps ahead and she says, you know, my mother told me always yeah, have an that, escape Yeah, that line route. was, I thought, so telling. Yeah. So when now that this settlement's happened and the Miramax, the Weinstein Company's um, uh, insurance company has paid out uh, tens of millions of dollars, are, d- yes, there's still a criminal case coming. But does it feel like a little bit of a cop-out that, that 
you know, it's not coming out of Harvey's pocket. I mean, that he's, you know, I, I, people are often unsatisfied with my answers to these questions because it's not, um, just performance art on my part to constantly say, I'm not an activist. I'm a journalist. It actually, it is the tenor of my passions on these issues. I care deeply about the issues. I care deeply about getting the facts right. And I don't have a lot of emotions stirred up about the outcome of a trial of a given person, whether a person loses a job, whether a person settles. I think in the Harvey Weinstein case, certainly the fact that there have been as many civil complaints as there have been, and a large swath of them will be wiped out by a settlement that doesn't come out of his pocket is indicative of the gulf between the haves and the have-nots in this country and the many, many layers of protection that wealthy executives have. And, you know, that's a systemic problem. There are still other possibilities in terms of women bringing suit who didn't sign on to this class action group. Um, There are still multiple jurisdictions undertaking criminal investigations of Harvey Weinstein. So we won't really see what the outcome of all of these variables are for years to come. When you, uh, in in your podcast, uh, you the first one is um, Igor, the investigator, who's, Igor. A, who's amazing. And um, I find it fascinating that there are these investigative groups, some of whom I have talked to for stories I have written. Like I have t- I've talked to Kroll uh, years ago having no idea that they were working with Harvey Weinstein um, or the Black Cube and places like that even existed. Do they all still exist? And have there been any repercussions? I was looking at, you know, uh, Kroll's website and I went to their Wikipedia page and there's no mention of any of this stuff. It's all been erased, of course, because that's what they do for a living. But <laughs> has there been any repercussions for these these agencies that like follow journalists around and uh, in a... A, a way that you would believe happens in Iran and Russia, not in the United States? You know, the various sources I have at Black Cube uh, and around Black Cube sometimes say to me, this was just good for business, all this publicity. And I think that's about half true. I think what's actually happened is the exposure that's come through my stories, and Black Cube, for anyone who's not familiar, was this... Israeli private intelligence firm staffed by former members of the Mossad um, that Harvey Weinstein hired as part of the plot in Catch and Kill um, and part of his effort to kill these stories about him. And I think that the reality is that exposure has uh, diminished some business opportunities for them, particularly in the United States, that major law firms don't necessarily want the optics of working with firms that are so associated with these kinds of underhanded tactics. Uh, But I also think that there is some truth to the fact that especially internationally, especially with regimes or individuals or companies that have fewer ethical compunctions, uh, the publicity only helps. Uh, But there's no, you know, these guys are not I would imagine not still following around journalists in the United States, or or you have no idea. Uh, I would not make that assumption. Really, mm-hmm. that's terrifying. Yeah, and it's a booming business, and you know, Black Cube is a particularly acute example of uh, a case where I've been able to unravel it by actually obtaining contracts, and there's been a lot of publicity and heat on them. 
some of the other firms you mentioned, including Kroll, including K2, which is the firm that uh, Jules Kroll started after selling his eponymous firm, um, those firms haven't seen nearly as much exposure. And, you know, really, despite their protestations that they would never knowingly sign on to work for these kinds of people and so forth, as far as I can tell, just keep doing the same thing over and over again. I mean, Jules Kroll is striking in this respect because, you know, he's a very genteel guy. If you ever have the chance to talk to him, he's, um, you know, quite lovely interpersonally. Um, but his firms over and over again did this kind of work for Harvey Weinstein. I mean, really were basically, you know, muscle for him for these sort of mafioso tactics. There's a guy at Kroll called Dan Carson who was basically Harvey's point person at the company and all of the exchanges Harvey Weinstein would have where he was trying to smear people or threaten people, very often Carson was on those emails, on those calls, uh, aiding and abetting what really walked right up to the edge of being maybe criminal behavior. I wish there were more mechanisms for ensuring accountability. I think there's nothing intrinsically wrong with the private investigation world. And I think that it I want to believe that it would open other positive business opportunities for them hmm. if they held themselves to a higher ethical standard. Do you think that Hollywood and the media industry, it, it, a lot of the Me Too movement has taken place around those industries. It's been very powerful men. Uh, you know, we can go through the long list of names. Everyone knows them. Uh, it specifically there th that. Do you think that there's something within this world that makes it more rife than elsewhere? Or is it just that we haven't heard the stories about the hotelier or the restaurant owner or this, that, and the other yet? Well, we have, we now have heard some of those stories. You know, industry after industry has been subject to this kind of reporting now. And I think, you know, the stories that penetrate the mainstream news cycle and that leave a lingering impression often are the ones that involve marquee names and industries that are more visible to the public, like the entertainment industry. But, you know, you've, you've seen this same kind of a reckoning where I think, was it Eater that did the... Yeah, Eater did the... Uh, but, but Mario Batali article. But celebrity, and, I mean, it's like still... You, know, you said hoteliers and there was that uh, there was that Times thing about Andre Bellage. I mean, the, you know, on and on and on. However, when you look at the media industry... You know, I mean, Fox News, for example, it's a long list of names. CBS, it's a you know, NBC, it's it's a long list of names within media. And I'm just curious if you think that it's a certain personality that does it that more so there, or is it just that we haven't seen the reckoning in in the same you know with the same fireworks that we have. In this world. I mean, those ones you just listed just happen to be stories that I've done, so I'm more aware of them, you know? So I, I don't know that I'm the best judge. I, I, I tend to think that these stories about the media world are significant partly because they mirror the abuses of power that we see in industry after industry. And I, I think that's been borne out just based on my anecdotal comparisons of, you know, the coverage of... Uh, farm workers or hotel staff and the coverage I've done of, you know, news networks and movie studios. But the Time's Up is trying to figure out how to how to cover more of the inequality in this movement, right? Yes. I mean, I, I think the fact that these patterns exist across so many industries uh, in, a, in a pretty even way, <clears throat> as far as I can tell, 
is no excuse for there being less reform you know, yeah. in, in one industry as opposed to another. And uh, I do think that we should all be uh, conscious of the fact that these stories involving big names and companies we're more familiar with get a disproportionate amount of the attention. You know, in, in terms of my story selection process as a journalist, I am only one person and I can only take on so many. And one of the points of interest about the media world specifically for me was not necessarily that the problem is worse, uh, but that when you have companies that are engaging in these patterns of deception and abuse, and it's become enshrined in corporate and legal practice, and that company has a news division, then that has yet another extra dimension that is specific to the media world, which is, you know, these are the people telling us our stories. These are the people narrating what we think of ourselves as a culture, how we make our decisions as a democracy. Why do you think it is, um, and I'm sure you've been asked this question a thousand times, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Why do you think it is that Bill Clinton never went down and Donald Trump has been able to be Teflon Don with this stuff? And, you know, when when everyone knows every, the more stories than we can count about these two guys. I think that's a really fair question. I do think, and I'm relieved to see that there is something of a reckoning happening around Bill Clinton, and people are, you know, returning to Juanita Broderick's allegation, and um, you know, all of that I think is overdue and important. Uh, you know, neither Bill Clinton nor Donald Trump have been subjected to quite the kind of expansive and exhaustive body of investigative reporting all consolidated in one place with a lot of new information to make it break through a media cycle that is very crowded um, that, say, Harvey Weinstein was. So I, I don't know that I buy the, the Teflon Don premise that no amount of reporting could amount to anything in terms of impact. I think there hasn't yet been the kind of reporting that we've seen in a Les Moonves case or a Harvey Weinstein case. So I think it's an untested proposition. But there's been a ton of allegations. Of course, against... serious ones, credible ones, but they've been disparate. And you look at something like, uh, you know, the E. Jean uh, Carroll, that's her name, right? Yeah, E. Jean Carroll. The, the woman who wrote the, that book. Um, and, you know, there's all sorts of reasons on the face of it to find that maybe credible. But, you know, that is someone who maybe had a significant story that could have borne out under investigative scrutiny, but we'll never find out because that's someone who, you know, decided to go out and tell it in her own way, which is completely her prerogative. And, um, you know, that's fine. And I hope that was empowering for her. But I think if you want to have the cultural and, uh, and repertorial impact you do need to throw in your lot with someone who's going to independently corroborate and couple that piece of the fact pattern with a wider fact pattern. So, you know, if there were a variety of new claims of that degree of severity that could be unearthed and, and all consolidated in one place, I, I guess I have enough maybe naive optimism in the power of investigative reporting that I think that would have an impact with respect to a Clinton or a Trump. You're listening to Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. 
Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. So I remember when I was at the New York Times, David Carr took me out for lunch one day, and he, um, uh, I was, I just become a columnist. It was like ten years ago or something like that, and he or longer, and he said, um, he gave me the spiel about Harvey Weinstein and how he was just the worst human being on earth, and talked about the things that you ended up uncovering, and he always said that he could never get the story. And what do you think it was? And David's an amazing reporter, uh, like you, you know, and tenacious and went after him for years and years and years. Do you think that the Me Too movement was was right time, right place because of social media, because of Trump winning the election, because of people finally having enough and and being willing to come out? Like, what was the thing that was different about when you started reporting it than when David did or somebody else did years before? I think I was absolutely the beneficiary of a moment of social change and a time when there were at least the beginnings of some precedent you know, that I could point to and tell sources, hey, look at what Gretchen Carlson did at Fox News. Look at um, what my sister did talking about Woody Allen. Look at what these Cosby accusers are doing going public. And none of those were super attractive examples to lay out because all of them were cases where there hadn't really been serious repercussions and for the the accused and where the accusers had been pretty terribly dragged through the mud. Uh, but at the very least, it they were examples of accusers standing their ground. But what what made it helped? What do you, what I, I think it helped it helped convey that there was yet another next step that could happen where people could speak and not get smeared, or at least get smeared, but also find a significant constituency of support. Do you think that the the those original accusers that did come out did they do you, did they feel empowered because of what had happened in society with the with Clinton not winning and and you know Trump the way he acted about the accusations around him and the tapes and things like that? I think part of the backdrop of the plot in the book, which starts with the Access Hollywood tape, was a moment of frustration for survivors of sexual violence and and for women in particular. And, you know, I think for the women making that decision, they were so deep in just struggling with whether to upend their whole lives over this that I don't know that it was a a conscious frustration that weighed so heavily in the decision. I mean, it's not something I talked about a ton with sources, this wider kind of philosophical gloss on the issue. You just tend as a reporter on this kind of story not to have the bandwidth to have detached conversations like that while someone is literally about to risk everything. Um, so the conversations are much more granular. But I, I did sense a rising tide of frustration, and I don't think that's unrelated to the political context. There was an article I read today about um, that the there are some people complaining, oh, the Me Too movement, it's gone too far, and, and there's a lot of people that are saying it hasn't gone far enough. And um, the article I'm, I was reading was arguing that that it had not, and that you know when you look at the, there are still people out there who have not you know suffered the consequences. This of their is actions. Kim Masters' article. Yeah, Kim Masters' article. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and uh, very visceral writing, and you know, um, you can feel the frustration she feels. Um, wh- what do you think needs to happen for for more people to be able to feel comfortable? Because it's terrifying. I can't even imagine, like listening to the podcast and and you know, reading stories and so on. The bravery which these women have to come out, and yet there are others that I think probably look at these situations and look at like the uh, the Eugene Carroll where there is no there is nothing that that comes of it do you what do you think needs to happen in order for the people that Kim Masters is talking about to be able to suffer the consequences that they de- they deserve well kim is an interesting case because of course she's frustrated she's worked on these stories for years and years and years and often in a climate where she had to struggle to get them in print or didn't get them in print. She's a significant part of an upcoming episode of the the podcast um, because her story and mine kind of intertwined during this investigation. She had circled Weinstein for years and years. You know, I tend to think of it much more from that standpoint of uh, the journalistic concerns and much less from the abstract, how far is too far movement related questions. I'm not really involved in or invested in movement building. I'm very grateful for and inspired by activists who are in the trenches trying to affect social change on issues I care about, but that's not really my job and I don't do a lot of thinking. But your job is your job is to is is a beat, essentially, right? I mean my job is is and my beat is investigative reporting. So whether that's corporate malfeasance or government malfeasance, um, I am hunting for criminal or illicit activity uh, that is an underexamined area that maybe does need reform and does require activism. But the activism part of it in those cases isn't my job. My job is just to lay out the facts so that others can run with them in whatever way the culture is Do you going really to. have no emotional attachment to the to the to the end outcome of your reporting oh, of course i have emotional out investment uh, in a very profound way in wanting to do right by sources wanting to make sure the truth gets out and is defended uh you know when you spend months and months and sometimes years making sure the facts are bulletproof and you've gotten it right and you've captured every nuance, you're, you're deeply invested in the outcome. Um, but that's the journalistic outcome. In terms of the cultural outcome, you know, of, of course I have opinions and I care about the issues and I watch with great interest, but there is a degree of genuine detachment. I think people find that hard to understand, but it, it's so all-consuming just to get the facts right. And I, I feel like I'm doing the right kind of public service by just drilling down on getting the facts right. And there's almost, there's not a lot of bandwidth left for then, you know, for me to also take on Tarana Burke's job. <laughs> there are great people who are engaged in movement building. And I, and I actually think that for me to get wrapped up in that separate side of it, the activism would do a disservice to my ability to, in every story, genuinely be willing to go wherever the facts lead. You know, whether it's, oh, this, this person with a claim of sexual abuse is not credible, which happens all the time in my reporting. Um, you know, this person uh, is credible, but, you know, the facts are insufficiently damning in some way uh, or not sufficiently revelatory. I mean, these are all precise journalistic questions 
that I try to keep unclouded by wider societal and cultural concerns. One of the questions I did want to ask you about is, is you know, uh, I've spoken to other colleagues at the Times, and, you know, they struggled with the number of incoming uh, people reaching out, telling their stories. Uh, some of them were they couldn't report because there was not enough facts. Some of them, you know, as you said, that there were some that were that were incredible. How do you figure out what is and what is not? How, like, how do you figure out which is the story? Because I'm sure you have an inbox filled with with people reaching out wanting to tell their story. How do you figure out which one to to, to take on and which one is real and which one is not and, and those things in between? It's really hard, and I share the reaction of those colleagues at the Times. You have a limited bandwidth as a human being working in this profession, and you want to do right by as many people who approach you as possible. Um, and there are clearly a lot of people who reach out who have absolutely credible claims about matters that are very serious on a personal level, uh, but also aren't the right match in terms of being a story that I should take on with the cost being that I'm not going to take on all these other stories. You know, I'm, I'm making these Solomon's choices and very often there are factors that have nothing to do with even the degree of seriousness of something that's been brought to me. You know, if someone brings me something that um, is tragic in their personal life uh, and has had a very real impact on them and maybe even others in their profession, but it doesn't break new ground in terms of a national or international conversation about an issue or a set of systems that I feel like I can shed light on, uh, often my response to that is going to be, you know, here's a beat reporter who just works on your industry, or, you know, here's a, a variety of systems you can use to come forward with what you're talking about and file a criminal complaint or uh, file a report in your workplace. You know, there's all sorts of mechanisms that may be well suited to some piece of evidence or some complaint that's being brought forward. And the best mechanism is not always, you know, a large New Yorker investigation. So that that can be frustrating to be so aware of those limitations all the time. And basically my solution is to try to pass as much as I can to other reporters when I'm not the right person for it. Do you think that, um, you know, uh, when I have – I was talking to people um, saying, oh, I'm interviewing Ronan. Do you have any questions? And one of the questions that I got from a few people, both men and women – was that they feel like um, this the, the the movement around this makes it so a lot of people are afraid to ask certain questions publicly because of the whole cancel culture thing and so on and so forth. And someone said to me, um, you know, there are men that are unaware, a woman actually said this to me, that there are men that are unaware of how, of what it is like to be one of us, to, 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 do the things that Amber mentions where she has to leave her jacket and so on and so forth. And that being not being able to ask dumb questions is not allowing people to have a conversation. And I know countless people that are afraid to ask questions about this topic because they're afraid that they are going to say something that will set off a, you know, and I'm curious if, you have ever found yourself in that situation or when friends have asked you like, hey, is there a question I can ask you that it's just that I can just ask you where I know I'm not going to be ridiculed on Twitter for it? 
Uh, and the, do you think that there should be a, a space where people can ask more questions about the things that they don't know the answers to, but don't want to be attacked for? I think cancel culture with respect to words and not actions is by and large quite silly, particularly if the words at issue are uh, either what you described, just dumb questions, or something inadvertently malicious that is then apologized for, or something that doesn't betray some wider malfeasance or some greater significance, if it really is truly just words. Uh, I think it's just such a waste of all of our time to be running around canceling people for that. You know, I think people should should totally have space to ask dumb questions. And uh, I think there's just plenty of terrible and sometimes criminal behavior that is absolutely worthy of cancellation to yeah, use I, that I, framework. I, no, it's a great way to say it. I think it's Without like, us running around ca- canceling all the people who said the wrong thing and then said, oh, shit, uh, sorry, I, you know, I didn't mean to say that. No, it's a really good point. I think I think uh, it, it should definitely uh, exist around actions, but not necessarily around questions. Yeah, I mean, I don't always uh, say the perfect thing, and I, you know, I try not to open mouth and insert foot, but, um, you know, when I, when I do... Uh, I try to be forthright and just say, oh, I see why this was misconstrued or I misspoke. And, um, you know, please don't cancel me for that. <laughs> I'm, try- I'm trying. I'm out here trying in earnest. Um, when you look at the uh, the future of kind of you, how many podcasts is it that's coming out now? It's So it's a limited run series. There's three that are out now. There will be a fourth next week. We take a little break for the holidays and then there will be another four in January. So one thing I found – I've you've got you got the book, you got the audio book, you got the podcast, movie. Is there a movie? The the, the movie rights uh, have been inquired after quite a bit, uh, both in interviews and by people actually looking to do the acquisitions, uh, and have not been placed anywhere. I got twenty dollars right here. <laughs> you you want to adapt catch? Yeah. Okay? Um, but what's interesting is I, it's what I found so fascinating about the way you've told the story is I mean there's also the magazine articles, there's the pod, mm-hmm. there's, there's these interviews, you know, um, the is that it's almost like when you see a really good movie and you go home and – or a really impactful movie and you go home and you're like, I've got to know everything about this. I've got to look oh, yeah. at the Wikipedia page. I've That's got to- me. I, I'm reading the Wikipedia. I'm reading the Reddit theories when I'm invested in something. I, you know, we're in a moment of media fragmentation for better or worse. But one of the maybe for better sides of that is – you can invest in an important story in all sorts of different ways. Well, one question I have is, have you ever thought about, like, I know it would be really hard to do this, but putting, I mean, you're kind of doing it in the podcast, but putting some of your reporting out there for people, you know, there's a, is there, like, another layer you can go into, like, the seventh canter of hell to show them, like... <laughs> I mean, I may be there at this point. That You know, the, the book already was very personal and revealing yeah. and, and really involved me essentially doing what you're describing. I mean, I created a Bible of what had happened on every day for a two-year period and um, every text sent, every email, every call. And uh, that kind of all made it into the book. It's a very transparent account of what it's like to report a story like this, obviously wrapped in the shape of a dramatic narrative. Um, And the podcast is yet another different, kind of stands on its own, but is a, a cool supplement for people who want more uh, 
chance to pull back the curtain further and you know think of it as if you've just finished a novel that you liked you can spend another set of 30 minute increments with each of the characters in it learning what makes them tick is there a certain character when you think about the the story um uh, you know is there one person that stands out to you more than others that you maybe identify with more or that you felt for more or is it do you love your children equally <laughs> there, are, there are so many incredible people i mean both incredible people because of their wonderful moral fiber and bravery and incredible in the sense of they're just so terrible <laughs> that run through catch and kill and you know I, i've been fortunate that i can capture the nuances of those people in in a way where you know the, the ones who are not so dastardly anyway have come back to me and said you know oh you really you captured me in a in a way that uh feels accurate so yeah i just you know part of what we do in journalism is organizing facts into stories that people will be invested in and trying to do it in a way that is fastidiously truthful um but also is as relatable and comprehensible and uh, emotionally invested as possible. I mean, each of these formats you're describing requires different things narratively, whether it's a you know, very nuts and bolts New Yorker investigative article that doesn't really have as much emotional color, or a book which is part memoir and really has a lot of emotional color, a lot of scene setting, um, a lot of character development, or a podcast where you're, you know, you're hearing people in their own words, and that's its own kind of unique power. Um, I think that they're all just variations on the same thing that we do fundamentally in our profession, which is to try to expose the truth by organizing the facts into a coherent structure that you can present to people. What is the thing that you want to, st you know, focus on next? Or are you still focused on what you're focused on right now, which is talking to Losers talking like to you. <laughs> <laughs> just, I'm just going to hang out and talk to you more. That's the plan. No, it's. I mean, at, at some point, the story you you either find a new story within the story, or you're going to find a new. Is there, are the things you're thinking about? I know you're not going to well, answer this I question. Mean, I just but... I just broke that Epstein MIT story the week before the book came out. Come on, it's I've been, been running uh, around on tour. It's been a couple hours. Oh God, so much pressure. No, of course I have ongoing leads, and I've in the past two years, you know, it hasn't been one story. There's you're catching me in a period where I wrote a book about a particular arc of stories with a bunch of new reporting in it, but it's it's derivative. Um, most of the stories that I do at any given time are sort of I actually want to I want to hear the story about Poison Valley that you mentioned in the podcast. Well, you can watch Rich. it on the Today Show. I know, but I want I want like the real the Ronan Farrow, the long form the long investigative form, take. Yeah, it know. is true that is a bigger story than the five minutes we did on the Today Show. Tell them what Ronan, tell them what it is. So Poison Valley was a story that I was working on with my producer at NBC, Rich McHugh, which did air on the Today Show about because it didn't have Harvey Weinstein. In it. <laughs> They let it air. <laughs> so I didn't have people calling the screenwriter president of NBC News uh, to, to try to uh, affect the outcome of the story. Uh, Dow and Shell, for years, going back decades and decades, laced the California Central Valley farmlands with chemicals that they, internal documents ultimately revealed, knew were toxic. And they 
basically planned to get rid of this material to save the cost of destroying them in the proper ways uh, by putting them into fertilizer products and selling them to farmers. So so insane. It's really insane and very evil. Uh, you know, it's a true Aaron Brockovich type cover up and. Um, Aaron Brockovich is actually, I think, quite read into this issue. Uh, Some of the same chemicals are involved. But there's wonderful activists still working on that. There is still toxic water and a lot of high rates of various illnesses that are, as is so often the case in these environmental stories, only tenuously linked but seem likely to be a result of this kind of contamination. And there's people suffering. You know, I spent a lot of time with people who work in the agricultural industry there, and um, they continue to have a hard time because of the legacy of these companies doing these things and then covering it up. All right, last couple of questions for you. Um, one question is, um, do you think Epstein killed himself? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I don't Sorry. know, but here's, here's what I'll say. If someone has a lead If anyone has a lead, on I, that, I, wanna re- I don't want to read about it. I just want to read about it. It's like one of those one stories where I'm like, I don't want to like talk to the crazy people on the phone. I want to read the Daily Mail article about it. I don't. Well, uh, I mean, joking. screw our wonderful friends at the Daily Mail. Send it to me. <laughs> if you have a lead about Jeffrey Epstein's death and real evidence, please email me. I'm Ronan underscore Farrow at NewYorker.com. Um, you should email him. I really want to know what happened. Um, do you think when you look back at, you know, your reporting over the last few, how long did it, how long has it been now? that you were working on all these stories what three years or more yeah i mean i i started the weinstein reporting uh at the end of 2016 beginning of 2017 do you think that um there are certain people that enabled these folks along the way that didn't suffer or didn't even like make it into the media i mean one person i mean there's people i mean i'm afraid to say names i don't want to say names but but like, okay, here's a, here's the person. All I do is say names. Okay. Look at how many bridges I've burned. <laughs> I'm I'm basically I'm just increasingly unemployable with each story that so I write. Jeff Zucker, for example. Jeff oh, Zucker was Matt Lauer's. Well, it was Matt Lauer's. Um, we're, gonna, uh, we're gonna piss off Jeff Zucker now. Yeah, I have no problem pissing off <laughs> Jeff Zucker. I have a lot of a lot All of right. bones to pick. How, with Jeff how do you intend to piss off Jeff? Well, but he was he you know he is um, he he. Made Matt Lauer, uh, was very close friends with him. At the roast, the it's the only mention, I think, in your book, it, uh, the roast uh, of Lauer uh, makes some lewd jokes about him and mm-hmm. cheating on his wife and things like that. And yet, and yet Zucker, there's no questions. And I mean, there are, have been articles written about it, but like no one has really kind of looked at, you haven't really looked at it, but no one's really looked at if he knew all the things that were going on over the years with Lauer and kind of looked the other way. And I and I, I guess the question is, is like, are there certain people who just haven't been looked at yet or they just it was too long ago and they just got to kind of float on by or did they do nothing wrong or what is it? What is it? Well, here's the thing, not to exculpate anyone by default, but I will say that in the Lauer case, there were executives who were told directly about complaints of misconduct Um who were not Jeff Zucker. And, you know, in every story, there's this question of how many people were complicit, how many people knew, how much did they know? And part of my job investigating these stories is also not to fire from the hip and to try to deeply understand 
who actually knew what. And that that can be complicated. You know, around Weinstein, there were assistants and also executives who suspected, who had worries. And then there were ones who really genuinely knew about specific instances of misconduct. And it's important not to conflate the two. So you've got this HBO thing. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Tell us like all the things that you're doing and, and where to find them and, you know, um, what's, what to expect next from from Ron Yeah, I, uh, I am at HBO for my TV business now. What is that? Like, what is it going to look like? It's going to be long form investigative stories in documentary form. And, you know, we talked about the power of t- these stories in different formats. And I'm a TV guy by training and was at the time that this run of print reporting started working on increasingly long form investigative stories. And uh, it was important to me to pick that up again. And I was at a point where if you've read the book, you'll you'll know I I really thought I had burned all of my bridges in television. And God bless HBO, it was Richard Plepler at the time, but Casey Bloys, who's still there, was also a, a big supporter. There are great people there who came in in that moment and said, actually, we're forward to looking enough to see that there's a big audience for this kind of tough investigative reporting. Let's do it for TV. So it's very cool. And I've got a little investigative unit working on these documentaries. And um, these things take forever. So it's going to be a while before you see it. But I can't tell us any of the topics. Absolutely not. Other than that, we're working on things that are near to my heart, and that I think will have the same kind of arresting quality in terms of ironclad facts that are surprising and dramatic um, that also fuel my print work. Great. And then you are working on the podcast. Can you give us any clues on who's coming next in the show? I can. So we're going to take a brief break after this week's episode, which just went live uh, for the holidays. And then we're going to come back in the new year with an episode that has really blown people away. We've heard it as we're constructing it. It's a couple of the more significant sources who went on the record first in the Weinstein story talking about that struggle. And one of them in particular, Emily Nestor, is someone who really had some strange twists and turns in her journey to coming forward. And at a lot of points had her story told sort of without her permission. And it made for an interesting dynamic. You know, she talks about her consent being not respected initially in the incident that spurred all of this for her and then yet again not being respected as this spiraled through company complaints and through journalism and the story becoming public. So it's an interesting sober explanation of what it's like to be in the eye of the storm as a story like this just spins out. Fascinating. Yeah. Can't wait can't wait to listen yeah. to it. Ronan, thank you so much for taking the time today. This has been a fascinating conversation. The podcast is available everywhere. Everywhere. And sign up on Apple Podcasts, subscribe, Google rate Play, it. and blah, 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 blah. Or you, can't you like text a number or something too? Or is that right to, to listen to it? Or that's the Audible book? Why, why do you need an Oh, for the, yes, yes. You can get a discount on the Audible of my book if you... <laughs> I know it's audible.com slash catch. Wow. Mm. Wow. Doing the promo for me. You're welcome. God bless you. $20. (laughs) Give me my $20 back. All right. I'll slip it across the table for you. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Really good to be here. Thanks. 
Thanks to my guests this week, Ronan Farrow. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, radio.com, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. Thank you, of course, to my sponsor this week, Lightstream. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I'll see you all next week. Have a wonderful holiday from all the folks here at Inside the Hive.